welcome to another beautiful Thursday morning. You're listening to Bhavani at IE Green on the Progressive Radio Network. And I have a great show for all of you today. Mandana Boucher, and I hope I'm pronouncing your last name correctly, will be joining me on the show in just a little bit. She is one of the founders of Wild Gather, the Hudson Valley School of Herbal Medicine. And I've invited her on to talk about what she's doing up there. But before she comes on, I wanted to share some things that are going on in and around the news with you, some ways you can take action, and of course, my weekly recipe. So um, I first wanted to share that the Long Island CSA Fair, which I had been writing about for so many weeks, finally happened last weekend. And unfortunately, the weather wasn't great. And even though we had a rain date, the rain date didn't look good either. So we went ahead with Saturday and took our chances and we did have a little bit of rain on us. Um, it held out at first it was sunny um, and we had a nice turnout and then some rain came then it cleared up the sun actually came out again some people came and then we got some hail go figure so it was quite an event um, we packed it up just at three and on our way home, the sky opened and it really poured. So we were really lucky we got it all in before it really poured. Um, but it was just so nice, again, to be outside, to see all of our farming community um, in one place. And not everyone was able to make it. So there definitely were some farms that were missing, but it was so nice. I think that the people that came were really happy because they got a good education about what CSAs are, which is community supported agriculture, ways that you can join, ways that you can um, get your vegetables every week. You feel like you get a free box of vegetables every week because you pay up front, you pay one time, and then all summer long, all season long, you get a box of beautiful, freshly harvested vegetables. So it's a wonderful way to go. Um, we also had a farmer's market there. Um, and a food truck and knife sharpening. So it was really a fun day. We had some music um, and hopefully next year we'll plan it for indoors. You know, had we known that the pandemic would have been at the stage it's in right now, when we were planning this, we maybe would have planned it indoors, but we didn't. And um, it was too late to make that switch. But hopefully next year, the pandemic will be behind us or will be adjusted to how it is. And we can do, go indoors because the indoor one really um, opens up so many more, more doors. But it was really great. And thank you all, whoever is listening, who actually did come. Um, it was really a wonderful, wonderful time. So I wrote about some ways that you could take action. And I'm going to tell you about it right now because tomorrow... Actually, yeah, tomorrow is the deadline. Um, no, today's the deadline. March Thursday, March 31st is the deadline to let our New York um, elected officials know that we want them to make um, a space in the budget for all of these environmental programs that are so dear to all of our hearts. We want to protect the wetlands. We want to protect the Clean Water and Clean Air Act as well as the Green Jobs Bond Act. And all this money needs to be allocated in the budget today. And so I sent my newsletter out yesterday. I hope many of you signed up and you know let sign the letter and let your legislators know. Um, there's also phone number you can call, but it's really important to let our legislators know and the governor know how important this is to us, our environment, climate change, the climate crisis is upon us. It's been upon us for a long time. I think we're waking up to it a little late. 
and we really need to move fast if we really want to protect um, all these important areas. We have 400 million for the Environmental Protection Fund we're trying to get um, funded, an additional 500 million for clean water projects, and of course the wetlands, which really um, you know, is a habitat for so many animals, um, really, really important. Um, a lot of our drinking water comes from these um, wetlands and they filter out the pollutants and um, help mitigate flooding. So it's just, it's all important, it's all good. And we need to um, let our legislators know. So please um, make a call, sign the form that's on my newsletter. And then I also wanted to um, applaud the, you know, finally the USDA has um, has addressed the origin of livestock rule, which organic farmers have been um, talking to them about for years. There was actually a loophole that allowed non-organic animals to join an organic farm and magically become organic, like without, without being born to an organic mom or without eating organic food or without grazing, all of a sudden they could just be bought and all of a sudden called organic. And that really... Um, made an unequal playing field for the small organic farmers that were actually doing it right and following the rule. And um, a lot of the, the industrial agricultural organic operations really were doing that. They were just you know, acquiring cows that were not really organic and you know, calling it organic. And it really was not much different than um, your more traditional milk. So, we want, um, we want to applaud that we finally have the origin of livestock rule in place. Um, we also, you know, I actually was trying to look to see if it affected actually when you purchase meat. There was also something years ago where they had to say where, the, um, where your meat came from, where that origin of livestock came from. And that was changed. And I don't know if this final ruling affects that or not. I will look into it and let you all know. But I know at one point, um, we used to know if you were buying meat, you used to know where that meat was coming from, what country. And um, that was removed a few years ago. And I don't know if this new ruling will reinstate that. So I'll find out and let you all know. But I want to share this week's recipe with you. It's a roasted farro with leeks, mushrooms, and spinach. And I actually think this might be the first farro recipe that I'm sharing with you. Um, I haven't cooked farro that much. It's just not something I grew up with, so I wasn't that familiar with it, but it is so good. And um, a friend was making it, and I just wanted to uh, soak it up. So here we go. It's a roasted farro with leeks, mushrooms, and spinach. And this is what you need. Um, some olive oil, uh, about four tablespoons. I use three leeks and you're gonna use just the um, light green part and the white part. The dark green part, you can either save for making a stock or compost it. And you have to wash leeks well. Um, to wash the leeks, you actually slice them down the long way horizontally and separate them and wash between each of the um, different pieces of the leek because the dirt actually gets in there and it's, um, you know, you can't just like wash the outside of a leek and think it's clean. You really have to like just take it apart to clean it well. One cup of chopped onions, three cups of sliced shiitake mushrooms, two cups of baby bella mushrooms, two cups of farro, a quarter cup of tamari, four cups of vegetable stock, 
one cup of sliced sun-dried tomatoes in oil, a pound of fresh spinach, and a quarter cup of chopped parsley. And you can also, you can double this if you want. Um, it doubles really fine. And in a large oven-proof saute pan, you're gonna heat the oil. You're gonna add the leeks and onions and cook for about five minutes until the onions start becoming translucent and the leeks are soft. You're gonna then add the mushrooms and cook that until the mushrooms are soft and most of the liquids absorbed. And then you wanna add tamari just for a moment. You're gonna add the tamari and that's gonna caramelize the onions and the um, mushrooms and make them much more flavorful in the dish. Then you're gonna add the farro and the sun-dried tomatoes right to that pan, stirring constantly. And that's gonna just toast the farro, um, you know, just season it just slightly. Then you're gonna add the vegetable stock, stir that up and bring it to a boil. Uh, then you're gonna remove it from the heat, cover it and transfer it to a preheated oven that's preheated at 400 degrees. So you need to do this obviously in an oven proof um, pan. I always love my cast iron skillets. I recommend those or any you know, um, cast iron enamel pan is really good too. And then you're gonna roast it in the oven for about 35 minutes, remove it from the oven and then you can fold in the spinach and the spinach will wilt right there. Just um, fold in the spinach, cover it and let it rest for about 10 minutes. Stir in the fresh chopped parsley or any other er fresh herbs you'd like. And that's it. So it comes together really fast. It's really delicious. And it's a wonderful change for um, a side dish, or you could actually have it as your main course dish. If you wanted to add some white beans to that or some tofu to that to, for some protein, you can do that as well and have it as your main course. So that's it. And now it's my pleasure to introduce all of you to Mandana Boucher. She is co-founder of the Hudson Valley School of Herbal Medicine, Wild Gather, Hudson Valley School of Herbal Medicine. And she's an Iranian American community herbalist, storyteller, and land tender, and a joyous member of the mycelial network of liberatory thinkers. I just love that. She is co-founder and educator at Wild Gather School of Herbal Studies, where for the past eight years, she's had the deep pleasure of sharing her love and experiences in plant medicine and community care. Mandana finds her North Star by supporting her community's journey back to the land and empowering others in their reconnection and remembering of our ancestral knowledge and technologies. Through her shared wisdom and initiatives in the Mahakantuk Valley, which is the Hudson Valley, she works to offer her community access to equitable care, plant medicine, and herbal education. Welcome, Mandana. Hello, good morning. So sweet to be here with you. Thank you so much for coming on board. Um, I missed you at the NOFA conference, um, but I was really glad to see you there. And that's how I found out about the work you did. And when I went to your website, I was just so intrigued. I was like, oh, I got to meet this woman. Aww, so, sweet. <laughs> um, so glad you could join us. But I thought first you could share a bit about your own personal history. Um, did you grow up in America or did you grow up in Iran and then come here? You know, what is your history and what is your connection to agriculture? Yeah, yeah. So I was born in the U.S., um, but my family um, immigrated to the U.S. Um, after the revolution. So my sibling was born in Iran and I came after the revolution. So I feel like a lot of Iranians talk about life in the context of before the revolution and after the revolution. And I very much came after the revolution, but I was raised in a house that 
was proud to be Iranian and was proud of our traditions and our culture. So I grew up in a very traditional household. Um, you know, we ate Iranian food. We, um, my family spoke Farsi. Um, we, we celebrated all of our holidays. There was just such a connection there. And I feel super grateful that, um, you know, my family was able to pass down these traditions uh, because the climate here wasn't that welcoming of Iranians at the time. And it, you know, it takes a lot to continue those traditions. So I feel like I am definitely a child of the diaspora. I feel like I don't necessarily feel at home in Iran and I don't necessarily feel at home here. And I somehow dance in the middle of both. Um, but yeah, I came to agriculture through my culture, through my tradition. Um, I think it's, it's basically all Iranians are really connected to plant medicine. Plant medicine is woven into just our inherent being, our inherent being, our inherent way of living. Um, you know, it's very common in the culture to go out into nature and picnic and enjoy the wild while also foraging a little bit, while also playing games and drinking tea. Um, all of our holidays are surrounded around, you know, the equinoxes and the solstice and all the sort of rituals and textures that go around with the change of seasons. And plants are a huge part of who we are, um, not only in a medicinal context, but also in a food context. All of our meals are very, very herb centered. Um, you know, with each meal that we eat, we uh, have a plate that's called Sabzi Hordan, which is essentially translates to eating your greens. And so breakfast, lunch, and dinner, we eat a plate of raw herbs. Um, that accompany our meals. And so when I say it's really a part of the texture of being Iranian, it truly, truly is. Um, so I grew up eating my medicine. And also my grandmother was an herbalist and a gardener. And so I learned a lot through oral history and oral story um, of, of who my ancestors were, who what my lineage was. And um, at a very young age, I knew I wanted to explore plant medicine. So by the time I was 18, I was working on farms, which, you know, that was a very long time ago. It was before the woofing movement. Um, and it was, there wasn't really much of a path laid out. I feel like now in our culture, herbalism and regenerative farming are becoming ideas that the, the larger culture is aware of. And at the time it was much lonelier <laughs> exploration but I just deep dived and I took what I learned from my family and my ancestors. And I just built upon that by building a relationship with plants. And here, you know, 20 something years later, I'm still working with them. Uh-huh. And did you grow up in the New York area? Yes. Yeah, so I grew up Yeah, I grew up in the Mohican Tuck Valley, which is commonly known as the Hudson Valley. And so, you know, this is such a vibrant area it's such a vibrant bioregion and you know as a kid I couldn't wait to leave so I was like 18 years old I wanted to explore the world and this country um, and I came back uh, actually you know at this point 13 years ago when my mom actually became ill and um, when I came back I was living in Northern California at the time and I remember coming up the train line up the Mohican Tuck River and thinking wow this is such a beautiful place to call home and just having that moment of gratitude because, you know, when you're young, you're just ready to explore, but it feels so good to be able to call these mountains and these waterways home and the plants, they feel like home for me. Yeah. Um, you're lucky to have grown up there. Cause you know, I have gratitude. I'm on long Island too. And, you know, especially during the, um, 
pandemic where we, I actually had more time since my jobs were canceled uh, to go out and explore. And, you know, we have such a lush greenery and then we also have the water and, you know, and then we have the city, you know, close by. I mean, it's just, you know, I'm very thankful. Yeah. So many blessings to be thankful for. And, you know, I discovered also during the pandemic, hundreds of acres of, you know, trails and places we could go hiking, which, you know, unlike the Hudson Valley, Long Island is so much more um, um, developed, you know, it's much more crowded and um, finding land to really hike is much more challenging, but it's really there. And, um, you know, we have a lot of um, land, land um, alliances that are saving the land and keeping it into open space. So anyway, so, um, what does springtime this time of year particularly signal for you? Like when you, you know, we see all the first flowers coming up, the daffodils and the crocuses, what plant medicines are coming out? Mm -hmm. Honeysuckle, um, what else is coming up? Well, I think for any plant enthusiast, spring is such a joyous time. And it's yeah. also, it's a joyous time. And then it's also, you know, saying goodbye to winter. And so for all of us that are farmers and growers, because uh, I do, you know, extensive gardening here on the land. It's a bittersweet time because it's you're excited to come out, but your body's still waking up from winter and the plants really support us in that process, in that change of seasons and the transition from our bodies going from more of a rest state to being up and out and moving. Um, and, you know, I live in the northern, I live in the northern hemisphere. And so when I look outside my door this morning, it doesn't actually look like that, you know, picturesque spring view of, you know, cherry blossoms and bloom quite yet, we're definitely still in the transition time. So we're in the time of late winter, early spring. And so the little signs of spring that you can see now in my landscape, where I live in my bioregion, are the trees waking up. And you can tell that the sap is rising because the trees are essentially coming to life. And so one of the first trees that we can see in our landscape that signals that spring is here are the willows. And I love, love, love this time of year when the sky is gray and foggy and the rains of April are coming and you can see the willow shoots, the new shoots of the willow trees are just bright yellow. And they're really showing that not only is the sap rising, but spring is near and growth is near and the meristem growth is near all that upward expanding sort of growth. So the willows are really a great signal to say, hey, spring is here, but also for herbalists, uh, it also means that it's tree medicine harvest time. And so even before the first greens of spring emerge, we are out in the woods and harvesting various tree medicines. Um, trees are such amazing plant beings and they offer us so much. They offer us firewood to heat our homes. They offer us bark for baskets and crafts. They offer us medicine for our bodies. They even, um, you know, there are parts of trees that are edible that we can eat as food. And of course the flowers of many trees become fruit um, and nuts. So trees are just a powerhouse um, in what they offer us. But this time of year when the sap is rising, there are quite a few medicinal trees that we can be harvesting from. And I like to say to like my herbal students that when the sap is rising, that's a very different sort of energetic process. It's like the tree is awakening. It's coming into spring. It's coming into airy season. It's coming into a really fiery time of year. And when the sap is flowing down in the fall to go dormant, 
it has a different energy. It has the energy of being grateful for a whole growing season of doing its job and doing its purpose of going back to the ground and resting. And so I feel like the tree medicine of the spring has more of an energetic sort of fire to it. Um, and so there are many different parts of trees that we can harvest for medicine. We can harvest the buds of trees like cottonwood. Cottonwood is a tree that grows abundantly in our area, especially around waterways. It really likes to have its roots near water. And um, the buds of the cottonwood tree have been used for time and millennial for um, various different medicines. If you've ever heard of the term balm of Gilead that comes from the cottonwood tree. The cottonwood tree puts out a resin that um, in the very, very beginning of spring, honeybees and all sorts of pollinating bees will go and take that resin and they'll collect it. It's one of the first things that they go to collect and they mix it with their own saliva and own enzymes to create propolis. And for all our beekeepers who are listening, we know that propolis is used by bees to sort of protect their hives. They use it as glue, as basically like a mortar to fill in all the cracks. And that propolis is super antimicrobial. And so cottonwood buds have a very similar taste and flavor to propolis and same color, that very rich amber color. Um, and so I love to harvest cottonwood and typically their harvest time, it varies depending on what kind of winter and early spring we're having. So I harvested cottonwood buds a few days ago and you know their time is fleeting because soon those buds will burst into their blooms. And if anyone has ever seen a cottonwood catkin, it almost looks like a Muppet. It's like a very crimson colored, like a uh, boa almost that you would wrap around as a scarf. They're very playful and um, funny catkins. And so those buds, I usually will infuse an in oil um, and we'll make a salve out of that. And you can use that um, cottonwood salve as a muscle relief um, uh, because of its, it has this, um, you know, anti-inflammatory aspect to it. It's uh, the cottonwood is in the willow family and a lot of willow plants have um, salicylic acid, which is what we, you know, salicylic acid is what aspirinus comes from. So it has these, you know, very mild pain relieving qualities. Um, and so it's really great to use, you know, I make salve for all my farmer friends when the growing season's going on and there's the muscle aches and pains. It can also be used as a cough um, chest rub, helping move any sort of um, stagnation that's in the lungs. Um, it can be used for sprains. And like I was saying, because it's antimicrobial, it can be used for wounds. Um, and yeah, so it's a really, really big powerhouse uh, tree medicine that comes in the spring. And then of course we have other trees like white pine and wild cherry that can also be used and harvest right now. Their bark um, medicinally, as the season goes on, we can start to harvest flowers of the trees. Um, and we don't wanna harvest too many flowers because those flowers will then become fruits. So, you know, only take so much. And then when we come back towards the fall season, we will be harvesting um, resins and pitches and things like that from the trees. So yes, a very long-winded answer of what's coming up in spring, first and foremost are, is the tree medicine. 
And as this, you know, beautiful landscape continues to open for us, then we'll start to see some of those first greens starting to shoot out from the ground. So we see our dandelion friends, we see nettles, we see violet, and then that opens up a whole new array of spring medicine. And that kind of medicine, a lot of those plants that are first kind of emerging from the ground are full of nutrients. They also have lymphatic properties. So they're moving the body. They're helping the body move. You know, after long winters, a lot of times in the winter, we sort of slow down. We're resting more. We're not as active. We're eating more rich meals, more nutrient-dense meals, a lot more fat in our, in our cooking because we're craving to be warm and being nourished. And so coming into the spring, these plants signal uh, you know, for our bodies, what they want. They want bitter, they want herbaceous, they want aromatic, they want um, plants that are going to be stimulating and moving to the body and really just cleaning out our bodies and our systems. Um, and they're bitter and they're pungent and they're super, super medicinal. So, you know, one of my favorite, favorite spring plants that come out is the violet. The violet is called Banafshe in Farsi. Its properties are, it's very cooling, it's sweet, it's moistening, it's considered in uh, herbalism a debulsant. Um, so it's really going to be um, just like this very light, nice kind of coating on our bodies, um, helping with the GI tract, getting used to the change of eating winter foods and coming into spring foods. It's a lymphatic, so it's going to really help move our lymph system. If you know, a lot of times in this time of year, people start getting those transitional spring illnesses, sore throat, um, swollen lymph nodes, and violet really helps move all of that. Um, it's also anti-inflammatory. And so it has all these really amazing properties for this time of year. And it's such a playful plant because we not only eat the leaves, but the flowers are so gorgeous and can make really beautiful, magical medicines. So one of my daughter's favorite things since she was really young to do is in the spring is to harvest um, violets with me. And we'll harvest all the flowers and we make a syrup out of it that's very simple to make with just water, sugar, violet flowers. And you're essentially making an infusion. And what happens is that infusion becomes this really beautiful um, blue color. And if you add lemon juice, little drops of lemon juice, it'll go from blue to pink. So you can kind of pick what color you would like the syrup to be. And then you can use that syrup in drinks and punches and all sorts of like fun spring elixirs. And that color is just like so gorgeous. Um, and then of course you can make tincture and tea out of, um, out of the violets as well. A lot of people think about roses for heart medicine, but violets are traditionally used also as a heart medicine. So it's a really great tonic for the heart, um, energetically speaking for heartbreak. Um, and because of its, um, you know, because of its, its properties of being a demulcent and being so moistening, it's also a really great um, plant to use in herbal eyewashes. Um, and so this time of year, a lot of people start to have allergies and they get itchy, irritated red eyes. So, um, you know, making a tea of violet and then uh, using a strainer to make sure no, there are no particles in that tea and then taking that tea and just putting, you know, one eye drop to start to see how it feels. Um, but I've worked with um, 
violet infusion for the eyes with many, many people for allergies, but also injuries to the eye because it helps with the healing process. And because of its cooling, moistening energetics, it's really just lovely for that as well. You know, it's so it's so amazing just listening to you ramble on about all the um, connections. You know, it it also makes me realize how disconnected our culture is. You know, um, you know traditionally, I mean, barely people use herbs at all. You know, fresh herbs. You know, someone might use some parsley for garnish, but rarely do people really add herbs for flavor i mean they use dried spices but it's different than than growing fresh herbs and using fresh herbs and um you know i i've had <clears throat> helpers around here who you know grow up in latin america and they you know they know about you know cilantro healing qualities and you mentioned white pine bark you know and i mean just it's just in so many cultures how to heal yourself naturally and in our culture it's just so traditional to just go to a doctor and take a pill like nobody people don't think to look to nature when most of our medicines come from nature like you mentioned um you know what was it the violet no willow the willow yeah yeah they make aspirin you know so it's just it's just fascinating someone actually told me that springtime is the time to actually look for um early poison ivy that if you eat, you can actually eat the herbs of poison ivy when they're young to become immune to poison ivy. Do you know well, about that? <laughs> so I would say that that is a, um, a sort of like a, what is the expression? An old uh, wise, wise, wise tale? tale or a folk um, sort of tale. But yes, um, in the early spring, we it's very easy to spot poison ivy because when it first emerges from the ground, it has bright red leaves. And so you'll really get a sense of where it's growing on your land because of that bright redness, it really calls you to it. Um, as it grows, it's really good at sort of hiding and it, it loves to also grow with plants that also have three leaves. So it sometimes it's really hard to see it once it's fully growing. Um, but I would not recommend people ingesting um, poison ivy, especially if they have a known allergy, um, you know, I would say the better thing to do is to learn about poison ivy, learn about how it grows and what poison ivy looks like and build a relationship with poison ivy. And once you build a relationship with poison ivy, then you'll have a sense of um, how to respect the plant. Because I think also in this culture, we don't really see plants as our relations. We see them as sort of the, the green greenery outside. And I think um, because this culture is so dominated by capitalism, um, you know, our relationships like you spoke to have sort of been separated from the growing world. And so I feel like a lot of my work as an herbalist and an educator is sort of being a translator or being a bridge to people who are excited and curious about wanting to learn about plants and uh, their properties and their values and their gifts and their stories um, while also being an ambassador to the plants. Because a lot of times um, we'll find in herbalism that people, they bring enthusiasm, but they also bring the inherited ideas of capitalism. So what, how is this plant good for me is a question I'll often get, or how can I, you know, make money being an herbalist or, you know, 
ethical, not ethically wild harvesting and going out into the wild and harvesting, you know, plants that are endangered or at risk like ramps. And so I think a lot of my work and my responsibility of the plants is being an ambassador for the plants. And I think the first place we can all start in building a relationship is really having respect for all plants, whether or not they cause a rash or whether or not they help, you know, they're a part of a chemotherapy medicine that helps countless people, you know, survive breast cancer. At the end of the day, there are relations and we owe them a lot of gratitude and we owe them a lot of care. Thank you. Yep. I agree with you on that. Um, <clears throat> so what are some of your favorite plant medicines? Uh, I mean, so many, but I will say growing up, I think the first memory I have of wanting to follow plants and just be their, you know, undying supporter was being in the kitchen with my mom and aunties and you know, in my house, I don't know, it might be similar for you because I think you also are Southeast from Southeast Asia, but cooking was an all day production. And my mom would wake us up at dawn and she, you know, we would start cooking and chopping all the herbs. And just when there's the, when I say there's so much herbs in our cooking, literally just a whole table full of green herbs that we're picking and sorting through and washing and cutting all by hand, never by recipe, always by intuition and by passing down the stories of the recipes. And when I was very, very young, the saffron would always come out at the very end of the, of the, of the day of cooking. And my mom would go up to the top cabinet and she would bring down her mortal and pestle that's specifically used for saffron. It's brass. And she would pull down the saffron and she'd put the threads into the uh, mortar and she would start to pestle it into this beautiful red powder. And then we add a little bit of warm water to that and the saffron blooms and the powder all of a sudden becomes this golden liquid. And I remember being three or four years old and just being in awe of this alchemy that was happening before my eyes and thinking, in my head at that very young age, wow, what, you know, what is this world? And I want so much more of it. And so I have to say a lot of my ancestral medicines, the, the, the plants that I grew up with that have brought me so much comfort and have brought me to this path are plants like saffron, rose, cardamom. Um, they're like a security blanket for me. Um, I, I often laugh with my friends who are indigenous to Turtle Island here that Zaffron, Rose, and Cardamom are my three sisters. They're my, <laughs> uh, yeah, just favorites. And so those are ancestral plants that, um, you know, Rose, we can obviously grow here. Zaffron, a lot of people now in the Northeast are growing and cultivating um, uh, crocus for Zaffron harvest. Cardamom can't grow here, but we're obviously lucky and grateful that we can still have that spice here in the diaspora. And I would say for plants that are native to this bioregion, I am a big, big fan of white pine, which we sp spoke about briefly. Mm -hmm. White pine is such an amazing tree. It grows so abundantly in the Northeast. 
And as a kid, I really, really loved white pine because I wasn't an, an athletic kid, but I loved nature. And um, if anyone has ever engaged with pine trees, you know that they have world branching. So that means that instead of having opposite branching where there are two branches reflecting against each other, or alternate branching where there's one branch high above and one lower, world branching is basically there's a bunch of branches coming out in a circle. And so it makes it really easy to climb a white pine tree. And so I have so many memories growing up as a kid sitting in the branches of the white pine tree and having these thoughts of feeling so protected by this tree. Um, and it wasn't until later on in my journey in plant medicine that I learned that white pine is antiseptic. It's antimicrobial. It has all these properties that protect us, literally protect us from having wounds that are infected, um, and it has warming properties, which is so wonderful in the winter. I rely on white pine so much because it's a conifer, so it doesn't lose its leaves in the winter. So it's one of those evergreens that we have access to their medicine year long, which is a big deal here growing, uh, living in New England, where for six months of the year, it's a white landscape of snow and cold. And so I go out into the woods or the back my backyard here and I harvest the pine needles and I'll make tea and it's warming and it's antiseptic and it's uh, stringent so if I do have anything going on in my uh, chest it'll help bring out any of the um, any of that uh, congestion it opens up the airways I live with a wood stove so I love to throw a pot of um, like a pot on top of my wood stove with pine needles in the water to just help the air just be cleaner and we're breathing better. Oh. And you can take those uh, pine needles and make vinegar and the pine needles are extremely high in vitamin C. So it's a great vinegar to make in the spring and then use all winter um, to keep us from getting sick. And if we, if we do get sick, help us support us in um, our healing process and um, Lastly, I'll just say that the pine trees, they put out this pitch when they get injured. So let's say a woodpecker finds the pine tree and decides it's going to, you know, peck at the pine tree. That wound, the pine will create this beautiful pitch, this beautiful resin um, that in the summer is very slippery and runny, but in the winter and in the fall, it hardens and becomes easy to harvest. And I'll say that because the tree creates this to heal its own wound, it's it's, you know, the, the ethical way to harvest is to only take a little from each tree, not to take all of the resin from one tree. And that resin is antiseptic and it's antimicrobial. And so it can be used for cuts, any sort of infected wound. And my favorite way to use it is for tick care. Um, so we have, you know, we live in an area where there's an endemic of Lyme disease and tick related illness. And um, in the spring and the summer and fall, you know, we're getting countless tick bites. And a part of my protocol after removing the tick and cleaning the wound site is putting pine pitch directly on the site um, because it, it, it acts as a drawing agent. So essentially it's gonna help pull out anything that's there at the surface la layer of the bite. Um, and so it's such an important medicine for me here as an herbalist working with people who are getting, you know, tick bites every day and, it just provides so many medicinal uh, medicines. And also I love to make baskets out of the bark as well. It's a really flexible bark. Um, and yeah, wow. white pine. Uh-huh. 
I've made baskets with willow branches, but never with not never with the bark. Yeah, that, that's interesting. Um, so tell us a little bit about your school before we run out of time. Um, what kind of programs do you have? And I know you run it with Lauren, your um, your partner in um, in life. And tell us about that. Yes. So we started the school um, eight years ago, and Lauren is my dear, dear friend. They're, um, you know, I call them my chosen family. They're my sister. And um, Lauren um, is also a longstanding community herbalist here in the Hudson Valley. She runs Good Fight Herb Company that is has been based in Hudson, New York. And we started the school because there was just a deep desire. The community were, were saying to us, you know, we're hungry for this information. Could like, can you put a school together? And at that time, you know, we were, you know, there's a really vibrant herbal community here in the Hudson Valley. So there was tons of workshops happening, but there wasn't an herb school. So we took a year and just spent a year on just deep retreat, putting together curriculum and what we were desiring to share because we live in an area that is um, such a wonderful bioregion full of native plants, but also tons of invasive plants that have countless medicinal properties. Um, and, you know, we come to herbalism from a radical standpoint. You know, we are environmental and social justice activists. So that's also a big part of our programming is really talking about the impacts of environmental racism and how that affects our health and our bodies and um, how plant medicine isn't always accessible to everyone. Um, you know, it has become very popular in our culture, but it's oftentimes, um, people who have access to wealth are the ones who are able to use it as an alternative therapy to Western medicine. So yeah, our school is our baby and we have gone through a very interesting two years because, um, you know, March, 2020 hit and our school is very land-based. We're out in the fields. We are in the gardens. We are going on trails and going on plant walks and making medicine in the woods and, you know, we really, the pandemic was very challenging and we had to pivot and pivot very quickly. And, you know, as a parent, I was like juggling homeschooling and recording these films. And we ended up making this really beautiful virtual program. So now we have this virtual program and it's great because it means for folks who are, um, you know, don't live in the area, for folks who have been wanting to learn with us and yeah, don't live close or are disabled or, um, you know, all the countless ways or reasons why they can't interact in person, they now have access to our online program. So that's called Seeds of Herbalism. And we offer that as a self-study program. So essentially what that means is it's, you do it at your own pace. Um, and it spans from the spring season is where it starts and it goes into the fall season. So it's a really great time to join the program right now because we're basically meeting all the plants as they're coming up. And then, you know, you can basically do the program throughout the whole growing season. And then this year, we're finally coming back to in-person, which feels amazing. And also, I just can't believe we've gotten here, but we're here. And we are doing a week-long program this September that's called Seeds Camp. And Seeds Camp is going to be a very immersive um, uh, 
playful and intense time. We're going to be deep diving. We're going to be going into many different forests and landscapes of our bioregion, meeting plants on site, um, learning about the folk use of the plants and the materia medica of the plants. We're going to be making a ton of medicine. So tinctures, vinegars, syrups. Um, We're also going to be talking and learning a lot about wild food and harvesting wild food and a lot of the invasive plant medicine that grows around here that um, provides us both medicine and food. And we're also going to be making baskets. So it's going to be just like a really nice deep dive into plant medicine. And um, yeah, so that's a program that we're doing. And we're also going to be putting out different like one day weekend workshops as the season goes on. So if folks are excited about herbalism um, and want to learn more, our website is called wildgather.com. And you can sign up for our newsletter there and learn more about our programming that's coming up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the virtual, um, the pandemic had a lot of silver linings, you know, that being one of them, because, you know, a lot of people can't get to the Hudson Valley but want this kind of information, being able to do it. I also transitioned, I, um, I didn't keep it up because it was just so much work, but you know, I, at first when everything closed down, I started doing cooking classes online um, and offering them out for free just to, to kind of share my knowledge. Everybody was cooking, needing to cook more and not going out to eat, like, what do I do? And so, um, it really was a, you know, nice, again, as someone small working, you know, solo or with a partner, you can really make those um, switches, just like, you know, the smaller farmers were able to be much more resilient than the big industrial farms that were dumping milk and eggs and all that stuff, because they couldn't manage to figure out how to get it out to market. So, um I want to just backtrack a minute because I know you talked, when I brought up poison ivy, you talked about respect for the plants and developing a relationship. But at the same time, as you know, many people don't want poison ivy where they're walking because they don't want to, um, they don't want to get the rash. And at the same time, as an organic um, person, I certainly am not going to use Roundup. So Mm -hmm. what do you suggest um, for somebody just pulling it up, you know, digging it up, um, okay. you know, while wearing gloves or what? <laughs> this is very funny that you're bringing this up because poison ivy is also one of my favorite plants. Oh, um, good. And I don't know how much time we have left on the show, but I can tell, I can tell wow. a little story, a brief version of this story. Um, and maybe it'll inspire people to develop a relationship with poison ivy, but About 10 years ago, when I was pregnant with my child, my partner and I um, moved into this cabin in Woodstock. And it was such a beautiful cabin and we moved in in the wintertime and my partner's a landscape designer and I'm an herbalist. And so everywhere we live, we build prolific gardens. And in the winter, you know, we were cozy. And then coming out into the spring, I started to see the three little red leaves everywhere. Um, you know, there was a bog near our home there, and the whole bog was a thick um, mat of poison ivy, vinca, and uh, sweet woodruff. Um, the poison ivy was literally, there was a long driveway up to the cabin. The whole long driveway was flanked in poison ivy. The poison ivy was growing up the house. 
And immediately my initial reaction at that point, you know, this was, I think actually it was maybe, yeah, it was like 10 years ago <laughs> was one of overwhelm and uh, panic. Um, because at that point, my relationship with poison ivy was, I knew what it looked like. I knew how to identify it. And I kept kind of a strict boundary with it. But at this point it was everywhere and it was growing up the house. And so my partner and I, you know, we discussed, you know, what are we going to do? Like, how should we engage with this plan? And in my head, I thought this land had been left behind, you know, there had once been people who had lived on the house that had goats and lambs and they baked bread that they brought down to the Union Square farmer's market. They, um, you know, built and grew these beautiful gardens and the people who had lived in the house in the meantime had just for, were not, they didn't have that same love and appreciation for the land. So the land was forgotten. And you could see these sort of cemeteries of what once were gardens and what once were little sanctuaries on the land. And so we decided that we weren't going to touch the poison ivy in the first year. We were going to work around it. And so we started gardening around the poison ivy. We started building beautiful gardens. We started recovering some of the gardens that were once lost, pruning. Um, and what happened was the pollinators started to come. Um, there were flowers and food growing everywhere. And the garden, the, the land was transformed. And we joke that the pollinators, like the ants and the bees started talking to each other saying, you know, someone's here, someone's here to take care of the land. Um, and the next spring, the poison ivy that grew up on our house was no longer growing up on the house. And every year the poison ivy like receded a little bit to the point that it was only growing on parts of the land where it was okay for it to grow there because it wasn't you know, necessarily where we were hanging out or sitting and we weren't worried about where it was growing. And I think it's important to note that the people of this land, the people of Turtle Island use poison ivy to create borders, to create boundaries. And poison ivy likes to come up where land is disturbed. So um, when a green space is ripped apart and a parking lot and a Walmart goes up, what often what the plant that will often show up first on the scene is poison ivy. Poison ivy is a protector of the earth. Poison ivy is a steward of the earth and it really protects green spaces and its fellow plant family. So the poison ivy that was growing up our house and growing everywhere was growing because the land had been forgotten. And it was growing there to hold space. It was growing there to say, this is, you know, I'm gonna protect this space. And once we showed up and showed care and respect, it saw that that was happening and it receded. Um, and so I share that story as a, as a reality that if you work with these plants and you're in communication with these plants and in relationship with these plants, they will listen to you. And in our time and living on that land, you know, so many plants came to the land that I didn't plant there. They came because they wanted to be there. Um, and that's another beautiful part about being an earth steward and tending land is that as you do that, the plants will come. But I will say for someone who maybe is more new to the idea of you know having a relationship with plants if you want to pull up poison ivy you definitely need to be fully suited um, so wearing gloves wearing um, coveralls or a clothing that you feel comfortable um, 
maybe not continuing to wear because the oil can really penetrate the clothing. And if you are really sensitive or susceptible to poison ivy, you can it can become systemic and you can end up in the hospital um, having a reaction to it. So yeah, I would pull it up in this time of year in the early spring um, before the leaves all start to come out with gloves on that you're, you feel okay with discarding after your use. Um, and poison ivy grows very differently. If it's a very old um, branch, those are gonna be much harder to remove. You know, poison ivy can get this thick. I mean, I guess I'm on the radio show, but it can become very, very wide in diameter. Um, and that's harder to remove, but then it also grows low and like on the, the, the floor of the forest. Um, so it really depends what you're willing to do. And, um, and of course, you know, in the, in this area, there's a lot of different companies that will come out, um, and remove poison ivy, but I don't, there's not, some people will say you can spray vinegar and that helps kill the poison ivy, but I don't necessarily think that's going to really take away the poison ivy. If you really want to remove the poison ivy from your land, you got to just pull it out. Um, and sometimes it's better to call a, a specialist for that. Yeah. You know, but you don't want to use Roundup. <laughs> I'm clear <No>. on that. <laughs> no, I would never use Roundup ever. I honestly feel like, like I said, if you really just relate with the plant and communicate with the plant, it will, it'll ease up because it, it's just there to protect the land. Yeah. Another thing I'd like to go back to that you touched on is capitalism involved with, um, people's relationship to plants. And of course, you know, some, you know, farmers grow plants to support themselves, make a living. And that's, that's fine. But I, I'm talking more about um, this new thing of trying foraging and people going out foraging without the understanding or the respect of the plants to know that you need to leave enough so that it replenishes itself. You know, people go in and they find ramps and they just like rip them all up. Yeah. Um, or what's the other one? Um, that's very common in the street of, uh, uh, not fennel. Um, oh, I know you. Fiddleheads. Fiddleheads. Yes. Yeah. Fiddleheads are the other one, mm -hmm. you know, um, you go into whole foods and they're selling, you know, fiddleheads for $21 a pound, you know? Um, so yeah. yeah, no one wants to spend that. So you're going to go out and try to find some, but you need to be respectful. Can you talk a little bit about how one forages with that um, love and respect. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, with visibility of herbalism and plant medicine and these ancestral food ways comes commodification and comes capitalism. And so the reality is that not everyone that's coming to the plants are coming in a way of um, with respect and honoring. And so, yes, um, we're having, you know, it's it's really what's happening with the ramps is devastating. So to be clear, ramps are at risk. So what that means is that they're close to being endangered. And once they're endangered, you know, it's very hard to bounce back from that. So for folks who are interested in learning about what plants in your bioregion are at risk and endangered, a great resource for that is the United Plant Savers organization. Um, we're there, they will show a list of what plants to tread lightly with. Um, I like to tell my students that if you're getting into plant medicine and foraging to take a year just in being in service to the plants. So tending the plants, watering the plants, giving them nutritious teas, spending time with them, 
whispering prayers to them and not harvesting them at all, not going immediately for use. Because, you know, I think of plants as how I think about human beings. I wouldn't go up to you, Bhavani, and just immediately say, oh, I really love that necklace you're wearing. I'm going to take it from you. You know, we would build a relationship and a friendship. And then as we became closer, we would share meals together and we would share stories together and we become more intimate together. And that's how we really need to be interacting with plants. Um, you know, I think it's very important for people who are getting into foraging to actually be able to positively ID plants. Another problem that comes with people rushing out into the woods, foraging for plants and mushrooms, is that they don't actually um, know what plants are edible and what plants aren't. And, you know, we'll go out into the woods and harvest a whole basket of mushrooms. And, you know, m many of those mushrooms not be edible. And then they're taking those spores out of the forest. Um, and so it's really reckless and useless. Um, so I would say, start a relationship first with your, your landscape, go out to a trail every day for a year and meet those trees and plants every day and spend time with them. And then as you start to spend time with them, and as you start to journal about them and learn more about what plant families they are in, what parts of the plants you harvest, how can you ethically harvest you can start to kind of zero in. And there are so many invasive plant medicines that grow in the Hudson Valley that are so abundant that you don't have to worry as much about um, the idea of ethical wild harvesting. Plants like garlic mustard, plants like Japanese knotweed, plants like Japanese honeysuckle, um, a lot of plants in the mustard family they grow very prolifically and um, aggressively. And so you can really tend these invasive plant stands and get a lot of food and medicine like the dandelion, like yellow dock, um, where we're not worrying so much about how it's impacting the, um, the plants. And why ramps are so important to talk about is ramps are a spring ephemeral and they're also a native plant to Turtle Island. And spring ephemerals, that means that they come up in the spring, they flower, they seed, and they go dormant as soon as the, the trees start to put out their leaves. Plants like ramps and bloodroot and toothwort and all of these really beautiful, magical spring ephemerals, uh, a lot of times for the seeds to germinate, it takes three to four years for a single seed to germinate. And then once it finally germinates, it takes like four to five years for some of these plants to flower. And so we're looking at seven to nine years for a plant to be able to be fully mature. So when someone's going out into the woods and harvesting as many ramps that they want or desire, they're literally taking years and years of work to create that stand. So while a stand might seem abundant to someone, it can disappear in a couple seasons and it can also never bounce back. And so here where I live, I grew up harvesting ramps because my mom, she foraged. It's a part of our culture. And now I don't harvest ramps, not even the leaves, um, because the, the spot where I used to go to harvest, it used to be acres upon acres of beautiful, mature ramps. Um, and now it's become so over harvested. There's such a small amount left and yet people come every spring and keep taking from it and you know what I think is important for us to be doing is tending the ramps making sure that the seeds germinate um, planting ramps a lot of times now you'll see in grocery stores like you mentioned um, people harvesting ramps 
and bringing them into the store with their roots. And so if no one, like a lot of times what I'll do at a grocery store, if they're sitting there and they're going to go to the garbage, I'll take the ramps and I'll replant them into the ground. And then I say to people who can't help themselves, if you're going to harvest ramps, don't take the bulbs leave the bulbs in the ground. Typically a ramp will have three green leaves. You can take one green leaf from each ramp and you'll be able to take enough ramps to enjoy a beautiful ephemeral pesto. But I also say, work with a plant that grows abundantly. We have daylilies that grow in our area that are extremely invasive. Um, they also have an oniony flavor. You can harvest the green tops of those and make a pesto out of that. Um, so let the, the slow growing native plants be and work more with the abundant invasive plants and then we can all be happy. Wonderful. And with that, I think we're going to call it because we're just at, at 10.59. I have more questions that that just sparked, <laughs> but I'm going to have to hold them for another time. Um, everyone who's joined us, thank you so much. It's been wonderful. And Mandana, thank you so much for coming on and your wealth of knowledge. It's really been a joy. Everyone out there, have a great rest of the week. You've been listening to Bhavani at I Eat Green, and I'll see you all again next week. Bye for now. Mm -hmm.